Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We need your support. The Tortoise Shack relies entirely on you to keep the show on the road. Mics on, lights on and conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. The simplest way to do that is to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is at the top of the pod right now. So while you're listening, give us the 90 seconds it'll take you to click in, find the level that suits your budget and help keep this show on the road. It is the easiest bit of activism you can do and you'll get a ton of additional content including lots of exclusives, all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed and they're entirely plea free. So not only will you be helping keeping these microphones on, you'll be giving yourself the gift of not having to listen to me beg, but beg I must. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Palcast, a podcast brought to you by Yusuf Jamal here in Istanbul and Helena Coben in Washington, D.C. Helena is the president of Just Word Books and uh, Tony Groves, who's joining us from uh, Dublin. Uh, Tony is our great producer uh, with the Eco Chamber um, Echo Chamber podcast, and uh, it's uh, February 2nd and uh, 4 p.m. here in, in Istanbul. And uh, today we're going to talk about a lot of things, Helena and, and, and Tony, including Onurwa, the Houthis, um, bombing the uh, Belgian development uh, agency building in, in, in Gaza in response to um, Belgium supporting UNRWA versus the uh, majority of the Western world cutting aid to, to UNRWA based on Israeli um, allegations. Uh, so what what do you have on, on your box today, Helena and Tony? Well, goodness, um, I've been writing a lot about the Houthis and about the uh, campaign that they have undertaken since late November in order to force a ceasefire in Gaza and the effects this has been having on global trade and the fact that the American Navy can't actually deal with it. So this past week, the um, national security advisor for uh, President Biden, this guy called Jake Sullivan, had to go to East Asia. He went to Thailand to talk to the Chinese to beg the Chinese to help in dealing with the Houthis. And and uh, China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, just told him, you know, it's not our problem, it's your problem. So <laughs> there's a lot going on in geopolitics around the Gaza crisis that I know, you know, obviously what's happening inside Gaza is at the core of our concern, but I think we also need to understand the geopolitics that's going on. Helena, can I ask on the the... Obviously, you you spoke about the last time the three American soldiers who who were killed and and the the um of course we have this awful word where you know oh these are Shia Shia proxies for Iran but if that that assumes that people can't act in some sort of way themselves but what it it, it seems to me that um the US is not really has not taken to you know other beyond rat, saber saber rattling now on this is that the is in terms of in terms of retribution for this. Yeah, um, I've noticed that they are very, you know, Biden talks a big line about like, you know, 
we will respond in a way that is forceful and at a time and a place of our own choosing and whatever. But I think he is very, very reluctant to get the U.S. involved um, in a shoot in a big shooting war in West Asia, and for good reason, because the U.S. Navy, the U.S. military are not in a great position to prevail in such a war. A um, lot more to talk about there, but uh, yeah, it's. I just want to come back to this question of Shiite proxies and yeah, you know Iranian proxies and whatever until. Um, March of 2023, the United States and the white empire worldwide was really successful in fomenting a division between Shiites and Sunni Muslims in throughout the Middle East and, and, and globally. But in March of, of last year, the Saudi and Iranian top negotiators got together and agreed to essentially reconcile their differences on those issues. And since then, the whole of West Asia slash the Middle East has been very different. Um, and, and, you know, you can see the support for Hamas, which is an overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim organization from Shiite movements and governments throughout the region, as well as from, you know, obviously the Sunni movements and, and governments. So that U.S. Um, tactic of divide and rule has has just failed, and and so was the lazy um, journalistic narratives of this is everybody falls into these camps now, which is um, which is what, what the camp I just fell into myself. So apologies. Um, I no, 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 no. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want to talk very briefly as I asked Yusuf before we kick off about. I spent a bit of time this week looking at Israeli media and some of the things that have been said uh, domestically. And I just thought it was interesting because what we would always say, you know, uh, politically in the ideo- ideology of the left, the right and the centrists and the centrists in, in, in Israel are just as keen for this war on Gaza to continue. But one of the interesting things was they were kind of saying... An interesting point was saying, well, you know, the hypocrisy of the ICJ and and the and the international community to to do to take these take to, for South Africa to take these these actions for people to talk, you know, call Israel, accuse Israel of genocide. They never did this in Syria. They never did this in Russia. They never did this in Yemen. Well, first of all. They did all of these things in Yemen. People were upset about Yemen. People were upset about what you know what happened. What happened in Syria? There was a case taken against uh, Vladimir Putin. There's a reason Vladimir Putin can't fly to certain countries because of sanctions that have been taken against him. But the real funny thing is, the the if you follow that argument put out throughout Israeli media this week, if you follow that argument to its conclusion, what they're saying is. You let other people commit genocide. Why don't you let us do it? And I just think that's an astounding self-own. They just haven't followed it through to its conclusion. Um, and I do think it doesn't get enough uh, coverage. Again, you know, I've, I've credited Haaretz here um, for being much more scathing of their own government than, say, you know, you get in, in American Western um, media outlets. But some of the stuff that's been said this week around um, around what they're actually saying... And then we have to acknowledge, funny thing is, they've said, one of the things that was said this week was the only organization that seems to have a plan for what to do with Gaza after, uh, you know, the day after, was the ethnic cleansing gang. That's it. 
and so it's it's a terrifying thought to think that these are the these are the moderate um, voices I'm listening to and I'm reading in Israeli media. Um, Yusuf, I'm sure you you're probably not as shocked as I was, but I just found it this week. You know, spending time at it, it was a bit it was a bit scary to see how far down the rabbit hole they've gone. Absolutely, I I remember our great friend Rifat Lagir one time mentioned to us an article titled how to be an Israeli journalist. And he asked us to read and probably translate this, this article. And, uh, it's, uh, just a, uh, you know, instructions of faking what's happening in, in Palestine. And in Israel, they have something called the, uh, al-Askari, the, uh, military censor. And this military censor, doesn't do like military work he does journalistic work he censors whatever israeli media outlets publish during specific escalations and wars and conflicts including uh, during the genocide in gaza and he says oh you should publish uh, uh, this number or that number or this story or that story for example the haaretz newspaper said um, that 5,000 israeli soldiers were injured in gaza and a few hours later the title changed to 2000 after the military censor asked them to do that. Um, so this is how it works. And Netanyahu, again, um, continued to wage his war on UNRWA. He said the best way is to allow other aid agencies, UN aid agencies, um, to deliver aid to Palestinians. And I want to stop here for, for a moment because, you know, UNRWA uh, is very simple, like uh, in many different ways. Uh, I went to UNRWA schools um, up until the ninth uh, grade, free education. My family always received uh, aid from UNRWA. And, you know, we do not celebrate this culture, um, aid culture. No, we, we want UNRWA to be dismantled, as I said before. But again, we have to consider how. Will Israel allow Palestinian refugees to go back home and then we dismantle UNRWA? Or we just dismantle UNRWA uh, amid this genocide as Israel wants uh, to do now. Now we have 14 Western countries withholding $440 million of aid and UNRWA said it's going to halt its operations at the end of this month if this aid is not resumed or if other countries do not uh, jump in. Uh, so I think it's important that we highlight the Israeli attack on, on UNRWA and, you know, UNRWA is not like any other UN refugee agency. It was created specifically for Palestinian refugees and uh, it's been taken care of, of Palestinian refugee camps since 1950. And uh, as Nor uh, uh, our great friend Helena knows, uh, the Quakers jumped in and they built refugee camps in Gaza in 1948. And after two years, they realized that, you know, uh, the, the issue will continue for too long. So they handed over uh, Palestinian refugee camps to, to UNRWA. And, you know, like Israel initially alleged that 12 or 13 uh, employees at UNRWA participated in the October 7 attacks. And now they reduced the number to four. Again, it reminds us of many stories and narratives that change a lot. And even, as I said, if even I could though, just jump in yeah. here, Yusuf, <laughs> we have to remember that actually UNRWA has 13,000 employees in Gaza. So just a handful of these people are alleged to have taken part in the events of October 7th. 
the the evidence has not been made public um the whole thing is is very strange and part of as you have noted a, a continuing campaign against unwa which you know is is as you said a very distinctive form of a un agency I also think that the attack on UNRWA is part of a broader Israeli attack on the United Nations itself, given that the United Nations is the body that's, you know, actually has responsibility for international peace and security and for the full implementation of UN Security Council resolutions and for full implementation of the orders and rulings of the International Court of Justice. So, you know, this is actually Israel attacking the United Nations and the whole of of the international system. If I could make a quick comment on that, Helena, that bears out by if you saw the Israeli-run UN watch. Um, uh, oh, how, God. How, how, but did you see how the, they, they had this? This was their big piece about the evidence that linked UNRWA to, to Hamas and, and, the, and the trouble that was caused. And there was a brilliant breakdown by it where they said this this um, this group was uh, was was basically an anti-Semitic radical Hamas group. And when, when, they, when you released the title it was literally a group of vacancies people looking for work with UNRWA <laughs> there was people looking for uh, daily updates to find out if there was work available uh, and you know one of the most anti-Semitic comments that they that they that they included in their evidence was someone literally saying God is great you know I mean we're talking about stuff that um, that wouldn't that didn't go wouldn't pass any muster yet was run with and and swallowed willingly by so many that just said you know okay but they must have the evidence we're happy enough to accept it and move on that's and that was less than 24 hours after the icj said there's a case to be heard for genocide and people dismissed that evidence with which had a huge overwhelming majority of judges say there's evidence so it was just so, so the hypocrisy knows no bounds no bounds whatsoever including regarding the the icj ruling it it's important to note that Israel's own judge on the court, because it's a strange court that allows the two litigating states to each name an additional judge to the court, the judge that Israel had named, Aharon Barak, agreed with the premise of the whole um, ruling, namely that the, that it was plausible to conclude that Israel had committed genocide and was likely to continue committing genocide. And he signed off on two of the specific orders, provisional measures that, that the, uh, that, that the court supported. So if Israel's own former head of their Supreme Court agrees with that ruling, how on earth can the governments in the West say that this ruling is, is meaningless? So quickly as well. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. They were so quick to reduce aid to UNRWA as if they were waiting. Like, you know, just give us some allegations and we're going to cut aid to, to UNRWA and starve Palestinian refugees uh, in Gaza who have been subjected to the most brutal genocide in, in, in recent history in the I, Middle I guess East. We do, ne- we do need to <laughs> shout out... The many governments around the world that did not do that because the the ones that cut off the aid, you know, tend to get the publicity because they have the big yes. publicity operations. But first of all, it's important to note that only a handful of white governments cut off the aid or threatened to cut off the aid to UNWA. And there were even some white governments that 
did not, that said, we're not going to do this. So a shout out to Norway and Belgium and other governments, Ireland, I'm sure, Ireland, did not Ireland, cut off. Ireland and Spain as well. Um, thank you. Thank you, Tony. But, but still, it's notable that this is like a, a kind of paroxysm of the, of the white empire, apart from those, those good governments. Absolutely, absolutely. And Tony, just w- one second. I think it's important, yeah, we highlight these uh, countries, but it's also important that other countries step in. China made a statement that it's necessary to continue to support um, UNRWA in, in many different ways, uh, most importantly financially. Uh, but also uh, these countries, 14 countries that decided to withhold uh, funds to, to UNRWA, including the UK and the US, probably contribute about 42, 44% of the budget because it's $2 billion. And I think the amount of money that was withheld was $440 million. So it's significant. It's important that other countries that support Palestine or care about human rights from Africa, from the global South, uh, also from uh, Europe, you know, not all European uh, countries are complicit in in, in this genocide. Belgium has been very vocal, uh, so uh, is Ireland. And I, I want to uh, also highlight that the Israeli government, Israeli forces targeted the Belgian development agency building in Gaza soon after uh, Belgium decided or said it's not going to cut aid to, to UNRWA. And in fact, the uh, Belgium Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs recalled the Israeli um, ambassador for clarifications. Well, that's that's really important and interesting news. Yusuf, what other news do you have from on the ground in Gaza? I'm sorry we've been talking geopolitics here, but I want to hear from you what you're hearing uh, from northern Gaza, central Gaza, wherever. I mean, it just must be terrible. So today there were clashes again in Tel el-Hawa, which is to the west of uh, Gaza City. Uh, however, Israeli forces have withdrawn from large areas and regions uh, in the north of Gaza. And people who were able to go back, they couldn't recognize their, not their homes, but their neighborhoods. It's like just rubble and destruction in Twam area in the north. Uh, Beit Lahia, Beit Hanun, the destruction is unbelievable. They did not leave a single house standing. Uh, there are, you know, one million Palestinians now who lost their homes. They will be homeless even if the genocide stops uh, uh, today. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of people in Rafah city in particular. Israel is advancing towards the west of Khan Yunis. And um, today my father's cousin passed away. He had a kidney failure and he couldn't handle the cold and the lack of medical care. He passed away in a tent, displaced from his uh, home in in Nusayarat, in in a tent in Rafah city. So the situation is is very bad and sad. Uh, I have some good personal news. I will be able to see my youngest brother who has a, a disability and hopefully my mom. Uh, so the Israelis rejected uh, listing my father and my mom for travel, which shows who controls the Rafah crossing again. They said, we're not involved. It's Egypt. You know, this is what they said before the ICJ. Um, but then when my mom went there and they try, she tried to convince them, it seems that it's working. And I'm waiting to hear the final news that she also 
I will be able to cross with, with my brother who needs her, her help and care. Inshallah khair, yeah, Yusuf. I hope it all goes as you as you plan. But, you know, this thing about Israel controlling the Rafah crossing, that's been the case all along because Israel has been the occupying power in Gaza as and in the West Bank since 1967. It's unbelievable to think that a military occupation like this can go on for 56 and a half years. But there we are. I mean, when I used to travel to Gaza, when, you know, whether you go through Erez or you go through Rafa, it's the coordination with Israel, the, the horrible Tansik that, you know, controls whether you can go in or out. And that is still the case. You know, the Egyptians have no sovereignty over the, over the Rafa crossing point. Um, can I just give it, just before we came on air, one of um, Mahmoud Mushtaha, the, the young journalist who we've had on the Echo Chamber podcast for the last number of years, he sent a, an audio voice note of tanks nearby, um, you know, still bombing and ex- explosions going off. Uh, and then uh, yesterday, Zach and I sent me lots of videos and, and footage of the tents being built and the construction of bigger, you know, the tent cities that are now sprawling along the, the border. And I'm gonna, I just had one little uh, kind of funny and um, I don't, I suppose, sweet moment. Whereas many people, I don't know if you saw this yesterday, you have managed to get their hands on a few little pots of yogurt. And um, and uh, my, my friend Afa Falnajar said to me that uh, that yogurt is more more precious uh, than to, than to than men to uh, Cuban cigars nowadays. And uh, someone else made the comment though when I thought it was uh, Noir Diab said that. Um, they, they give me give me yogurt. So the joke is, though, I'm going to keep mine for later in the fridge because, of course, there's no electricity to to keep anything. But it was quite a um, it was funny to see the, the 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 how your spirits can be raised by such a simple such a simple thing after 117 days of the ongoing ethnic cleansing and genocide in Gaza. Uh, I just thought it was. I thought, yeah, it, it's all the news is still very grim, but the human spirit remains uh, undefeated, and the people in in Gaza are so resilient. It's 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 remarkable. Yeah, I think you know that I've seen videos of people who lost everything in Gaza, their homes, their families, but it's it it you know amazes me that every time there are people who manage somehow to keep a smile on their face, and this is you know the resilience of the Palestinian people. Um, because again, Palestinians have no other place to go to. Uh, literally, the vast majority of people in Gaza even cannot leave Gaza. Um, and this is the only place that we call home after we were displaced in, in 1948 and became refugees in Gaza. And uh, that's why we will continue, you know, to, to celebrate life. Uh, we love life very much. And even during the genocide, I've seen videos of, I saw, uh, uh, a guy celebrating the uh, first baby steps of of his child, you know, walking, and uh, it brought joy to, to to my life. But again, situation is very sad, Tony and Helena, and the destruction. My, my dad, I spoke to him yesterday, and he was like, "I've never seen something like this in my life." I, I, even Nusayarat, which is, I mean, the situation in Nusayarat is better than the north of Gaza, much better, but. My dad still says there is a huge destruction here. What you know, what you read, what you saw is only 1% of what actually happened to us. Yeah, the rebuilding is going to be massive once we get the ceasefire. You know, I've been following um, 
all all the diplomacy around the efforts to get a ceasefire. Truly, I don't think that uh, Netanyahu wants a ceasefire. Um, you know, because he knows that the moment there is a ceasefire, the the political pressure inside Israel is going to mount. Both the the political pressure from the kind of what Tony referred to as the centrists in Israel, who are you know very right wing for centrists. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there is a broad constituency in Israel that really you know blames Netanyahu for what happened on October 7th. And he was anyway in trouble, in bad political trouble before October 7th. So he knows that his political situation is is going to be like really, really precarious the moment that, that the guns fall silent. That's one thing. And the other thing is that the, you know, that is when you'll get the eruption of the, um, conflict inside Israel about what to do with Gaza after the war because Tony mentioned you know the ethnic cleansing camp inside Israel these people are very powerful they are represented directly in Netanyahu's government and last Sunday they held, held this big jamboree in Jerusalem where there were thousands of them dancing and hollering and and you know carrying on with their plans to reestablish and extend all the Israeli settlements that previously existed in Gaza up until 2005 so that you know those people will be you know the, the moment there's a ceasefire they're going to be you know getting on their wagons and heading off to to build their rebuild the settlements in Gaza the peace movement in Israel, we need to like recognize quite um, seriously that there used to be a, something called a peace movement in Gaza. And right now it is extremely small. It is extremely vulnerable. And, you know, it it's nothing like what happened, for example, in 1982 after the Israeli massacres in Sabra and Shatila refugee camps in Lebanon. Something like a million people went out on the streets in Israel to protest against that brutality. Nowadays, the most number, the greatest numbers that you get on the streets in Israel to protest brutality in Gaza is maybe two or three hundred, you know? And, and it's, it's just like politically irrelevant. Morally, it's really important that those people are there and that they are pursuing their anti-war actions. But the, the, the momentum inside Israeli politics is still for aggression, for settler colonialism, for, for ethnic cleansing, for genocide. And, you know, it, it's a terrifying picture. Absolutely. I mean, if we look at the uh, statements made by Israel's uh, Minister of Finance, Smurich, who comes from a town in, in Ukraine named after um, I mean, he's named after that town. The uh, rhetoric he uses, it's, it's scary. And even when it comes to reaching a prisoner swap deal w- with Hamas, he says, I don't want to deceive the families of hostages. It's unlikely to happen. And if Netanyahu, you know, makes compromises, we're going to withdraw from the government. So this is their threat. If any deal is reach if the the genocide comes to an end then we will withdraw from the government and it will collapse and probably uh, Netanyahu will be in a very difficult uh, position um so you know if you look at the Israeli opposition Yair Lapid um he's also 
equally supporting the genocide in Gaza. He just doesn't like Netanyahu. It's it's uh it's very in- not really like a huge difference. Two, two two really interesting points come to mind when you said mentioned Ukraine. Um, because of sanctions that were put on on Russia, there's been money frozen in, in global accounts across the globe. Um, whatever your feelings are, whatever happens with that conflict, they were saying we will use some of those funds to rebuild Ukraine, the parts of Ukraine that were destroyed by by um by Russian artillery. We've nothing like that been talked discussed when it comes to the destruction of Gaza. Nothing like sanctions haven't even begun. To, to hit and then the, the second part as you said about the prisoner exchange um, I need to reiterate this now we're now 118 days into this There's no, they're no closer to dismantling Hamas they're no closer to um, finishing the the war as they as they set out to do they haven't recovered the prisoners outside of the, the prisoner the, the hostages that have been exchanged in part of a deal they haven't you know they haven't been freeing people in fact they shot people who are a bit, who who are coming you know forward and and now we see reports that they even covered up the killing of a an American citizen as well so I mean it's they they there is a real dawning realization that this is a failure of a campaign as well, whatever way they want to pack it, package it. And the, the horrible, you know, behind over 30,000 deaths, it's all, they've still failed to, to do, to, to achieve their, their military goals. And this is something that, you know, Israel, it's dawning on the general public in Israel as well. That's, that's uh, absolutely right. And I, I just want to ask Helena about Joe Biden and the measures he took against Israeli settlers, some Israel, cute Israeli settlers in the West Bank, and the refusal of an Arab mayor um, to meet with his campaign. And uh, although he knows that he's going to lose, you know, some swinging states because of his position on Gaza, he's still like, he, he tries to get these um, representatives and figures and they didn't meet with him, which is great. And just to take a picture and say, you know, I care about Gaza, but after what? Like, there is no Gaza anymore. So, you know, um, our good friend Leila al-Haddad, um, who is really a, a rising leader in the Palestinian-American community, as well as a, a dear longtime friend of mine um, and a brilliant author and public speaker, Early in the uh, Israeli campaign in Gaza, she was part of a group of Arab Americans that were called in to meet with Antony Blinken. And she said it was a very disappointing meeting and that they have tried, you know, the State Department has tried to invite Palestinian Americans since then. And she and most of the others have refused to go and meet. And in fact, just an, a really interesting and good note here. I don't know if people are following Layla, Layla's accounts on social media where she posts as Gaza mom, all one word. So she was part of this lawsuit that was brought in federal court in California against Blinken and Biden and, and uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, charging them with complicity in genocide. And they had their day in court um, I think it was actually last Friday, the same day as the ICJ um, ruling was, was delivered. And Layla said that it was a very, very moving day for them, them to be in court and that she felt that the court and the judge there had really listened to all the testimony that Palestinian Americans and Palestinian American organizations and legal justice organizations presented in court so that the judge issued a ruling 
a, a day or two ago, and he said that sadly he didn't have jurisdiction to in order to to you know actually enforce anything on Biden and Blinken and Lloyd Austin, but that he thought that the ruling of the ICJ and the the testimony he had heard in the U.S. federal court was extremely moving and compelling, and he urged the federal government to comply with with the ICJ rulings. That was great. You know, that was wonderful for Layla and for all the people who were who were plaintiffs in that in that lawsuit. But it does point to the fact that Arab Americans, Palestinian Americans, the many thousands of people across this country who have family in Gaza, who who care deeply about Gaza, we don't have a voice in the federal government. And um, you know, President Biden has talked about, you know, very movingly about the anguish of Israeli families who were so so badly harmed on on October 7th. You know, we can all grieve with those families, but let's have an equal dollop of grief for each of the Palestinian families who has been, you know, so badly damaged, had their their worlds overturned in in Gaza. And that's what what Biden seems incapable of doing. So he did announce this thing, which is like the the most pathetic little sop of a policy that he could apply to people who are, you know, violent Israeli settlers, four of them in the West Bank, who have, you know, actually already been convicted in Israeli courts of having attacked Palestinians and Palestinian property. And he's going to sanction any property that they own in the United States. And he expects, you know, Palestinian Americans and the general public to think that this is an important policy? No. It's not. It's it's ridiculous. So, sorry, Yusuf, to disappoint you. It's it's it's, it's a it's bad. bad. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay, thank you, Tony and Helena, for the discussions today. We talked about a lot of things, from the Houthis to UNRWA to Biden to countries that also decided not to um, defund UNRWA and the importance of UNRWA for Palestinian refugees, but also the situation on the ground in Gaza, which is getting worse by the day. Um, some personal news here and there, uh, hopeful notes that you know this genocide will, will finally come to, to an end. I would like to thank our co-sponsors, the Hashim Sani Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Malaya in Malaysia for the support uh, that makes uh, this podcast possible. And uh, a thank you to my great co-hosts, Helena Coben and Tony Groves. We see your pain and pray for your truth So I'm not saying it's the same But see we were the blueprint Recognise the struggle cause we've seen it before Curse of Cromwell, bloody Sunday and the burning of Cork Balfour left his mark on the emerald oil Then he went and lit a spark under the Zionist coin The black and tans were ousted Finally from these shores Churchill went and sent him to the Palestine police force Anybody born in the shadow of their main oppressor Diamonds formed from years under the greatest pressure Occupation over several centuries 
Sadly, scares remain deep within collective memory, connected through history. We can hear your people's call. Up and down this island, your flag flies over City Hall. Deep down, we recognize under the rubble are our brothers and our sisters from a similar struggle. Oi, Ella! Oi, Ella! Oi, Ella! Danami, the Rogni, Nyerke, Kurlekela, Gazan's Pendin. Trapped by the wall, Israelis daily violating international law. It's military aid, the Lee law neglected as exceptions are made. In Gaza, they literally have their backs to the wall. Israelis daily violating international law. F 16s, Apaches, US military aid, the Lee law neglected as exceptions are made. Collective punishment, the slaughter of civilians. You don't target anyone when you cut water off to millions. Oasis of democracy, fair from that. Families forced from the West Bank as land gets grabbed. Like 1984 on a daily basis. NSO, Pegasus, Blue Wolf surveillance. Amazon and Google workers want to watch it witnessed. Feed with them to put an end to Project Nimbus. Unit 8. Unit A200 trying to do more spying Need real journalism to review their crimes APAC, hijack, what's truth or lies So you may not read about it in the New York Times Oich, Ella Oich, Ella Oich, Ella Zanami de Roigny Nyerke Kurlekela Resistance from the Raytheon 9 or an Elbit system. Solidarity to people no different to you and I. As the UN Betzelem or Rabbis for human rights. Anybody listening who refuses to get it. Criticizing war crimes isn't anti Semitic. We know Jews and Zionists are not one and the same. Love to Jewish voice for peace, screaming not in their name. We coined the term boycott down around Westport. Ironically, might just be our proudest export. Call for BDS and more trade embargoes. For Steve and those imports not to take their cargo. We mourn innocent debts of every persuasion, but know the way to end the violence is to end the occupation. Pray this dark night will end. And we'll see the dawn, Ireland to Palestine, Sirsha, Shia Khan. <laughs>